0: Psalm 145, one of my wife's favorite psalms, the word of God says, God opens his hand and he feeds all that is. Every good and perfect thing is from him. Every good in your life has been authored and tailor-made for you by the living God. Your children, your riches, your poverty, whatever it is, God has authored it all for your ultimate good in Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you would turn in God's holy word to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9, Jesus is better, that's been the theme, that is the theme of the book of Hebrews, and a little synopsis, a little memorable way to think about the book of Hebrews, Jesus is better, we've been unpacking as we've been going along how that is so today, Jesus is better, we see him, we see him in verses 5 through 9, the author has warned the readers, that we will not escape judgment if we neglect so great a salvation, this salvation that God has procured and secured in our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Davidic Son, the Son of God Himself, fully man and fully God in one person. Today in verses 5 through 9, the author goes on to explain why, and once again he takes up this comparison with the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ, this Davidic king, who's the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the one in whose feet has been placed all things, that he's superior to that of angels, showing that the rule of the world to come, that is the kingdom of God, has not been given to angels, but to Jesus Christ as the, the representative man, as the archetypal man, "...as the man who represents all of his people as the last Adam, that through this man whom God has ordained to bring mankind to their ultimate destiny, God has anointed him and appointed him as king of kings who exercises dominion over all of creation." How was this accomplished? This was accomplished through His incarnation when He assumed our humanity, when He assumed a nature like us, joining Himself and His divine nature to His human nature in one person through the incarnation, His cross, and subsequent exaltation. And the preacher now uses the themes of Genesis chapter 1 and this dominion mandate given to humanity And Psalm 8, the, the exposition of Genesis 1 about the greatness of God and His care for mankind. Man seems so insignificant and so small in light of the vastness of the universe that God would care for him. But God has made him a little lower than the angels. Right? And crowned him with glory and given him dominion over all that he's made. But that's not what we see, right? We don't see the man ruling over the dominion of the creation the way God purposed and intended in Genesis, but we're reminded here in the text, we don't see man as he is going to be in his final destiny, in all of his glory, as an image bearer, as the vice regent, as the prince of the living God. We don't see that yet, but we see him, and who is the him? The Lord Jesus Christ, the, the last Adam, the one who accomplishes salvation in his very person and work. So let's give attention now. This text is vast. I, I was thinking to myself, it's almost like taking, this, uh, taking a blind man and taking him up to the crest of this ocean on the shore and telling him, here's what the ocean is like. I'm trying to explain it. I'm inadequate. Any man really is inadequate to explain and expound the glories of the, the Son of Man, the archetypal man, Jesus Christ, who accomplishes so great a salvation. But let's read the text and then ask God to bless it. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace, by the grace of God, He, that is Jesus, the man, might taste death for everyone. Let's ask God to bless the exposition of His Word. Lord, we come before this lofty and holy, infallible and errant Word, asking that You who breathed out this Word through Your Apostles and prophets would come and illuminate the Word, that we might spiritually discern that which only the Spirit can illuminate. Oh, Father, You would take us from ignorance and bring us into the light and the glory of the face of the Son of God, Son of Man, the archetypal man, the last Adam, who restores paradise lost, that we might see Him, Jesus Christ in the midst of our perplexity, in the midst of all the brokenness and all the folly and all the destruction and ruin that surrounds us in this present evil age, when we might be discouraged not to see him, but you would give us the eyes of faith to see him who now reigns in heaven, who one day will usher in his kingdom in all of its consummate glory and bring a new heavens and new earth. And His reign has now already begun, and yet there is a not yet in which we participate even now as we long for the the consummation. Oh, Father, You would keep us faithful. You would keep us hungering and thirsting and seeking first Your kingdom in righteousness, that we might behold Him, that we might see Him, who is invisible now, who will one day be made visible for all to see. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. One of the great dangers in the Christian life, I know in my own life, is to lose perspective on how great a salvation has been secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. The temptation is to see and understand salvation merely in individualistic or parochial ways, right? as a tribal religion is somehow just affecting this little small body. Rather than the universal body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the the cosmic redemptive nature of new creation beginning in the resurrection of the last Adam. That nothing less than this has occurred in in the dawn in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the, the living God in Jesus Christ was reconciling the world to himself, fulfilling his purpose and plan for humanity. For all humanity, for all eternity. That as humans we have an inherent dignity, that we have value, and we're created to rule the creation as God's subjects, as God's vice regents, as those who've been given this authority. And is this underappreciation and realization of salvation that was that was causing the causing the believers there who are receiving this letter to to doubt what Jesus has done. They're doubting the goodness of God. And this is understandable, right? They're they're under persecution. They're suffering. They're being ostracized. They're being shunned for their faith. They're, They're suffering for the cross of Jesus. And they're growing weary and they're contemplating It was so much easier before Jesus. We would go to the temple and we would practice all the things that Moses would tell us to do. We would do them. It was so much easier. Rome recognized our religion as Judaism. It was a recognized religion in the empire. And now we're following this man, this Nazarene called Jesus, this this God-man, supposedly, who's been raised from the dead, who was crucified on a cross, of all things. That we follow this one who embraces this emblem of shame called the cross. You see, they were failing to appreciate all that God had done in God's final word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And beginning in verse 5, the author continues his argument, showing the superiority of Christ over the angels. Look what it says there. He picks it up with the word for... Picking up what he had just stated there in chapter 1, 14, that angels are giving as ministering spirits. For it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Now what is this phrase, world to come? What does it mean? What does this clause mean? It refers to the new heavens and earth, where the dominion lost by Adam will be restored to humanity in the last Adam. It's nothing less than the new creation. The kingdom of God itself and all of its consummate glory. In Hebrews twelve twenty-two, it's called the heavenly Jerusalem. In Hebrews twelve twenty-eight, it's called a, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Saints, while angels are, are glorious and angels are majestic, it is not to angels, not to these messengers, these angelic host that God has given the authority and the dominion to rule creation. Not over this age, nor the age to come. Rather, it's to human beings that God has given this, this right. Do you remember what Wes read in Genesis one Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness, and let them have what? Dominion. Let them have rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And here in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 6 to 8, the author goes on as he takes up, as it were, Psalm 8 into his hand, into his heart, and expounds on Psalm 8 as a commentary on Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Right? This demand this dominion that God originally gave man as his image bearer. Notice what he says in Hebrews 2, 6-8. through It's been testified somewhere. Isn't that interesting he would put it this way? It's not because he doesn't know where it's testified. But rather his emphasis is on not on the human authorship of the word, but on God's authorship, God breathing it out. God's the authority behind the word of God. It has been testified somewhere, what is man? Now, you need to think collectively here. The generic sense, mankind. What is, what is humanity? Right? Isn't that the question we all long to know? What is humanity? What is man? That you are mindful of him. Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So Adam, the vice regent of God, God's prince, and Eve, his princess, were given dominion to go out and to reproduce and to fill the earth with images of the living God. You see, that's what you are. You're, You're an image of the living triune God. You have inherent value. You have dignity. This used to capture the imagination of the West. Right? This was the romance that man was created with dignity and value, intrinsic worth. This is where Bach gets his inspiration. Where Rembrandt, he paints. He paints the glory of the triune God. Because he has value. Because he's made in God's image. He's given dominion. You see, the psalmist here is marveling at the thought that though God has made man, that God cares for him. That God takes notice of him. That for a little while, man was made lower than the angels. That God has given mankind dominion over the works of his hands, crowning him with glory and honor and putting everything in subjection under his feet. So David cries as he cried in the beginning, right? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Thy name in all the earth. He cries it at the end of the psalm. right? He cannot help but cries. He thinks about how the, the transcendent and holy one of Israel cares for him. And the vastness of the universe, with all the stars and the black holes and all that is, from the macro to the micro, right? God cares for man. He made him in his image. You see, David knows that mankind has a special place in the created order. That to man, not angels, God has given the responsibility of stewardship and rule of the creation. Notice what he says in verse eight. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he, that is God, left left nothing outside his control. Now isn't this, and I thought here and I have it in my notes, isn't this what this generation of nihilists need to hear? We have a generation of young people who think they've evolved from a pond. They have no value no dignity, but I'm here to tell you you're made in the image of God. You're precious in the eyes of the living God. You have inherent value, intrinsic glory as an image bearer. Right? You're made in His very image. And that obviously, notice what he says in the second half of verse 8. Right? In, in contrast to the glory of of God's intention for the creation of man. Notice what he says. And yet, obviously, verse 8b, at present, notice that, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Beloved, because of Adam's rebellion and sin, the glory and dominion for human beings has not become a reality in history. In partaking of the forbidden fruit, Adam did not become like God, but rather like the devil whom he obeyed. Listen to Matthew Henry describe the, the glory that was man and the, the juxtaposition of the fall of man. He describes it this way and the results that followed after the fall. Now, when it was too late, Adam and Eve saw the folly of eating the forbidden fruit. They saw the happiness they had fallen from, the misery they had fallen into. They saw a loving, God provoked, His grace and favor forfeited, His likeness and image broken, and dominion over the creatures gone. They saw their natures corrupted and depraved. They saw themselves disrobed of all their ornament of honor, degraded from the dignity and disgraced in the highest degree. You see, saints, what we see now east of Eden is human history littered with the wreckage of destruction, of a world gone mad. A world in ruin. And yet, even in the brokenness, there still remains the image of God in each and every individual person that has value. You see, it's obvious, though, that at present time, this world is not under the rule of humans as God had desired. The story of humanity is a story of dominion loss. This begs the question, will it ever be realized Will this dominion and will this glory and this subjection of all creation ever be placed under the feet of man? Will there ever come a time in the future when everything will be in subjection to us as God originally planned? And the answer of Hebrews 2 is yes. In the resurrection of the last Adam, the realization has begun. The future has invaded the present in the resurrection of Christ. And while it's true at present, we don't see it. The preacher reminds us in verse 9 of what we do see. Right? We don't see man reigning in glory in a pristine environment in paradise. No, it's paradise lost. But what do we see? Look at verse 9. What do we see? We see him. Well, that begs the question, who's the him? Who's the antecedent to the him, the pronoun We see the last Adam, the the representative man, the Davidic king who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Notice he doesn't say Jesus Christ. You know why? He's trying to stress the humanity of the Son of God. That a man is now reigning in heaven. The glory lost, paradise lost, is now paradise restored in this last Adam. He is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We see Christ, who in his incarnation for a little while was made lower than the angels, but now rules and reigns at God's right hand, is therefore crowned with glory because of the death he died for sinners. You see, by faith, what do we see? We don't see man reigning in his glory. Where do you see it? You cut the news on? Do you see it there? Does CNN give us the glory of man? Fox? Your blog post? Drudge Report? No, you don't see the glory of man. You see the folly and the brokenness and the foolishness of man. But we see him. We see him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the the last Adam. Who, for a little while, 33 years, was made lower than the angels in the Incarnation. That he might restore the glory of mankind. The glory of creation. That he might not only restore it, but he might advance it. He might elevate it to what Adam could have done if he'd have been confirmed in holiness by not disobeying God. He would have been secured and in the, in the tree of life would have been free for him to come and eat. But Adam failed. And in so doing brought himself and all his posterity into this Brokenness into this world now full of sin and destruction. But we see Him, church, do we not? You see, beloved, Jesus has fulfilled the vocation God intended for humanity. And though it is we, as the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, who deserve to die because of sin, it was He whom the Father gave up at the cross in His love to rescue hell bound sinners. It was the perfect man, the beloved Son, in whom the Father was well pleased. Who was given to rescue sinners from death and judgment through his blood. And notice that it says he tasted death. Now you might think, well, he did. He? That just is the connotation, perhaps. Well, maybe he just sipped it. No, beloved. No, 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 no. This word taste is the word in Greek to, to experience in its fullness. He experienced death in all of its fullness. No man has experienced death like the Son of God at Calvary on that cross. On that Good Friday, when he cried from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He who knew no sin was becoming sin in that moment as the sins of his people were laid on him. Just like in the book of Leviticus, they would take the the lamb and the father would take the lamb and bring it to the temple before the priest and the father would confess the sins of himself and his family over that lamb. That that lamb might be reckoned a sinner. All foreshadowing. As a type to the anti type, this last Adam, this archetypal man, the representative man. Right? Notice, I want you to notice this as you're reading the Bible. Notice how God uses his reference referring to Jesus as the man. Pilate on Good Friday calls him, Behold the man. You see, he represents all humanity, right, as the archetypal man, the perfect man. The representative man for his people. You see below it, that is what he's done. He died for everyone, it says here. Now we know that's not everyone without exception, but everyone without distinction. This must be understood in context. If you were in Sunday school this morning, you would have heard a, a faithful exposition of this concept. Right? Everyone here is interpreted in verse 10. Who is the everyone he died for? Verse 10, for the many sons brought to glory. Verse 11, for his brothers and sisters. Verse 13, for the children God has given him. You see, not everyone without exception, but everyone without distinction. But death was not the final word for the man, Christ Jesus. Because he was obedient unto death, the death on the cross, God therefore exalted him, crowning him with glory and honor. This is the very same concept that Paul will pick up in Philippians 2. Right, Therefore, God has exalted him and given him the name above every name by virtue of his obedience at the cross and his passive obedience and his active obedience for his people, for his beloved brethren, for his brothers and sisters, the ones he came to represent as the representative man, the perfect man, the last Adam. And beloved, the role and dominion to humans in creation, which Psalm 8 testifies to, has now been realized in Jesus Christ, in Christ, death has been undone. Its dominion has been broken. Sin and death were not the victors over Christ, but rather the victims. In Christ, beloved, paradise lost is now paradise restored. You see, saints, Jesus is the true man, the representative man, the man in whom and by whom God's original design for humanity is fulfilled. He is now crowned with glory and honor. And yet we do not see all His enemies subdued, but in Him we see the destiny of the human race, of the elect, the destiny of all those who by faith believe in Him. F.F. Bruce puts it this way, the sovereignty which man proved unable to exercise thus far is already wielded on man's behalf by the true Son of Man. His suffering and triumph constitute the pledge of His eternal kingdom. It is this glorified Lord. It is this glorified man who now lives in heaven to intercede for us as his people. Now that's vast, isn't it? Right? That's, that's like trying to explain the ocean to a blind man. Right? You can't do justice to it in the short time that I have. Right? It's that vast. But I want to conclude by reflecting on two implications of this representative man now that he is gone into heaven as the exalted Lord, the God-man who now represents us in heaven. What are some implications for us that he has now been crowned with glory and honor? As the kingdom of God advances, his enemies are being made subjects to him. He's destroying and conquering his enemies through the proclamation of the gospel. Well, first, this implication This destiny of being crowned with glory and honor and exercising dominion is part of the great salvation that we're told not to neglect in chapter 2, verse 3, right? Christ, the representative man, died and rose again to secure so great a salvation, to secure our adoption, to secure our forgiveness, and to secure this dominion lost. Now it's restored in Jesus Christ to fulfill God's intention and purpose for humanity. It is this great salvation that we're not to neglect. And I would add that the dominion given to the redeemed even includes, beloved, even includes in the new heavens and new earth. You know that you will judge angels. You will judge angels as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.3 Saints, it's the redeemed in Christ, not angels, who are destined to have all creation put in subjection under our feet. Well, the second implication because of what Christ, the last Adam has accomplished, the days of sin and sorrow and death are numbered. The days of sin, sorrow and death are numbered. Right? Presently, we don't see everything in subjection to God's image-bearer. We don't see everything in subjection to the son of God, son of man. At present, we're daily reminded of the effects of the fall all around us, right? Even this week, there was a tornado in Mississippi, right? I believe the last time I read, 24 people had died. Hurricanes, famines, pestilence, pandemics, war, earthquakes mar the landscape of all creation. At present, friends and family suffer the, rage, the ravages of, of cancer. Some of us in this room are going to die of cancer. We see paralysis. We see heart disease. We see blindness, physical and spiritual blindness all around us. And we find ourselves asking God why. So this is the great salvation that you've done, you've wrought in Jesus Christ. Where is it? I don't see the glory of this kingdom that you speak of." We find ourselves asking God, why? Why does a young father, while running out around the campus of U of R, die of a heart attack at 38 years of age? Why does an 18-year-old daughter of a missionary couple, whom I love, die in a horrific car accident? Why? Why does an elderly lady fall prey to a scam artist who takes all that she has, exploits it, and crushes her under his feet? You see, our lives east of Eden, under the sun, according to Ecclesiastes, our portion in life is often the question why? How long? We all want answers, don't we? We want healing. We want salvation. We long for justice. And sometimes the side of heaven, God graciously gives it, but not always. Not everything is the way it's going to be. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. Do you? Do you see it? Do you see everything in subjection to The representative man, the Son of God? You think the saints in Sudan see it? Or North Korea? Or Algeria? Or North Africa? Do they see it? At present, we do not see everything in subjection. And notice what the Bible, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat it, right? It doesn't give us some Pollyanna answer, Oh, just cheer up. Ignore it. Put your head in the sand. No, there is no more real word than the word of God. There's a realism about the word. We don't see it. Presently, we don't see it. He says it in the text. We don't see the reign of the Son of God. We don't see God's image bearers ruling and reigning over the creation that God intended in the beginning, before the fall. We don't see all the creation in subjection to man. So what does God call us to see? By faith. Having the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, we see Him. By faith. By faith. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned. Jesus, with glory and honor because of suffering and death, So that by grace, by the grace of God, he might taste death for his people. Saints, what we see is Psalm 8 already fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul goes out of his way to say that Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the new creation. The new creation has broken into the present in Jesus Christ. He's the first harvest of the one harvest of God. And if the first fruits has been brought in, that just means the rest of it is sure to follow. One day you're going to be resurrected from the dead bodily, even as now you are spiritually. You're going to be given a new body, a new temple, as it were, of the Holy Spirit. We're going to put off these bodies, these mortal bodies, these tents, as Paul would say, because Paul longs to be clothed, just like every believer longs to be clothed with that which is immortal. Right? Just as Adam, he'll argue in 1 Corinthians 15, brought death, so Christ, the last Adam, he brings life from the dead. He brings immortality. He brings the new creation. He brings the fulfillment of Psalm 8 that's going to be restored in a new humanity created in Him as the last Adam. You see, He is our hope in this broken and upside-down world. So when death comes calling, right when the oncologist tells you, Mr. Bullock, it's stage 4, Yeah, I I deal with stage four. I deal with reality. But I don't let the circumstances of this present life overwhelm the reality of him crucified, dead, and risen. I, by faith, see him. So when my spouse dies and I see that hole in the ground, six feet, and I see that casket going down into the grass, we see him. We see him by faith. Who died and was raised again. This new Adam. This last Adam. The better Adam. We see Him. That's what we see. In the dark night of the soul. When you're going through life and you have more questions than answers. We see Him by faith, young people. Right? You're looking for definition. You're looking for Meaning. We see Him by faith. You see, this is what we see. When you've been praying for years and it seems heaven is silent, what does faith do? Faith sees Him. Him who is invisible with the eyes of faith. When you're ostracized and hated, maybe even lose your friends at school because you're not cool like the cool kids, Because you're not going to participate in the debauchery and the the, the sexual morality and all the wickedness that defines the world. No, I'm not going to participate in that because I'm a child of light, not darkness. I'm going to stand with the Nazarene because I see him. And when your boss comes to you and he asks you to compromise, right? No longer play the man being a person of integrity, but to compromise, cut corners to help the bottom line. What do you see? You see him. You see him. Who was made lower than the angels for a season. Who by the obedience of death. Tasted death for you. By the grace of God. And was exalted and raised. The fruition of Psalm 8 is now fulfilled in Jesus Christ the dominion lost is now the dominion restored you see him all saints though the fig tree doesn't blossom nor there be any fruit on the vine the produce of the olive fail the fields yield no food yield no food the flocks be cut off from the fold And there be no herd in the stalls, yet we will rejoice in the Lord. We will take joy in the God of our salvation because by faith we see Him. We see Him. No matter what happens to us, we see Him, don't we? In conclusion, fix your eyes on Him, the author and the finisher of your faith. The pain, the futility and death that mark and characterize this present evil age don't have the final word. The son of man does. The Davidic king of Psalm 8. So the next time you read Psalm 8, I want you to read it with this understanding. I see him who fulfills this for me, and his destiny is my destiny. One day I'm going to be raised from the dead bodily, and I'm going to see him, and I'm going to be like him, he will still be the God-man, unique forever. But you will be restored in the image of God in all of its fullness, all of its glory. C.S. Lewis said, if you were to see someone in this state of glorification, you would be tempted to fall down in worship. That's how great and glorious it's going to be. You're going to be restored in all of your fullness. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Beloved, Christ has lived and died for sinners. Christ has conquered the grave. The last Adam, the representative man, the archetypal man, see Him. This week, when you're struggling, see Him. Cast your eyes on Him who loved you and gave Himself for you. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank You for Your faithfulness. We thank You that the Lord Jesus Christ is the victor over the grave He's the better Adam, the last Adam who brings new creation. And there's an overlap, Lord, in this world as though the creation has already begun anew in Jesus Christ and yet we still remain this side of that new creation, the consummation of it. We live in the not yet, but we live with the hope of the already and what will be and our destiny before us, the future grace that awaits us in Jesus Christ when we will see him and we will dwell with him in the new heavens and new earth, when dominion lost will be fully realized in all of its glory and dominion restored in Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, keep us, encourage us, strengthen us to hold fast to this great gospel, so great a salvation. May we not neglect it. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn, Be Thou My Vision. I did not plan that. God and the Holy Spirit did using his instrument, knells. Let us stand and sing 642, Be Thou My Vision.